two different places, so 1 Peter 1 and 2, and another bit from a bit later on. So, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Amen. This this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'm going to share for a moment and then Lydia and Sam are going to come and preach with me and then I'll wrap up at the end. And, And partly why we're doing this is because it creates an opportunity for people who who might be called to preach, in this case Sam and Lydia, to have a go. But I also like it because it ruffles our feathers a bit about what preaching is. Did you just move my Bible? No. Lydia's always taking my Bible. Um, So let me just explain what I mean by this will ruffle our feathers because we're probably used to one thing as like well this is a bit weird this is sort of three people so so let's just have a think about preaching what's the rumor that's a good rumor (laughs) (laughs) that's a great rumor but I uh, we're still learning about rhetorical questions in in our house but um uh I love rumours. I, I, you know you're not meant to, and you're not really meant to like gossip. But I, I just, it's, just, it's interesting, isn't it? When you hear a little rumour, when you hear a little gossip, it's just instinctively, it's fascinating. And, and, and what's the rumour of the church? Yeah, you, you, well, Lula already said it. But, but you get what? There's a rumour alive in the church about Jesus. The, the words that have been shared since the very beginning of Christianity of faith and affirmation that Jesus is alive are what has started a transformation that is still going on around us. There are eight million local churches, they think, from massive stadiums built to, 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 to house thousands to most are just small, modest settlements, often in minority uh, cultures where Christianity isn't necessarily approved of or even legal. All over the church... All over the world, the church is alive with a rumour, a rumour about Jesus. And preaching has always played a critical role. In the uh, Church of England lectionary, which I am a a partial follower of, uh, this week we heard from 2 Timothy chapter 4. In fact, it was the reading, one of the readings for today. And Paul's 
command to Timothy is to preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. From the beginning of the church, people have stood up to explain Jesus, to announce him. And that has made the difference because, and Paul actually fleshes out his argument in a different letter, a letter to the Romans. And this is the argument for why preaching matters. Paul says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How can they hear without someone preaching to them from the beginning of the church until now the rumor of Jesus being alive because people have faithfully opened up the scriptures and preached? It's best to think of preaching as an event, as a moment, as a a happening. One writer talks about events in the way in which Jesus is like an event, as like a train crash or, or a kiss, something that happens in time and space. Preaching isn't a theory, it's a moment where we encounter this room refreshed through, through people's personalities. And what I've asked Sam and Lydia to do is to break open. And I'm going to tell you what they're going to break open. They're going to break open the scripture. Uh, and, and interesting, this is also what I look for, just to say, if I, in, in way, where the people might be called to preach. They love these things, the things I'm about to tell you. They're called to break open the scriptures to break open culture, to to have listening ears to the world around us, what matters. And people who love the world around us and people who love the scriptures, I'm drawn to think maybe maybe they might have have a gift to preach. And then in the moment to break open the spirit to this room, people of of prayer, preachers are people who pray. and, And what's the spirit of Jesus in time and space right now wanting to do? To break open hearts. Preachers love people. They love the scripture. They love the culture around us. They love God in prayer and they love people because it's only to people that we preach. I mean, you can preach to, 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 the, to the anything you like, but it's not quite the same as when you preach to humans. And lastly, the church, in this time and space, this congregation, this group of people, they're going to break open those things. That's what we're doing when we preach. We break open the scriptures, the world around us, the spirit in a time and a place, hearts, and, 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 the, and the church. Now, something that you've probably never heard in the sermon, and many of us might, might be new to church, it might sound more logical if you're new to church, but you might be surprised to know you, you, not many of us have probably heard, heard a sermon on how to listen. <laughs> it's a funny topic, isn't it? But I thought I'd just pass on just what I would suggest to use this opportunity is, is three ways to listen to sermons. Firstly, attentively, and that's a massive issue. If you want to get the most out of preaching, I recommend you come to church preparing to be attentive. Having made advanced plans, I would, this is one I have to do, to turn off my phone, to not think about anything else. Secondly, to be humble, to have ears prepared to hear where God might challenge us through scriptures. And, and thirdly, to be expectant expecting that God will meet you through preaching. 
So Sam and B are going to share in just a moment and bring us this, sorry. <laughs> Sam is married to B, <laughs> comes off, off, uh, off the tongue. Sam and Lydia are going to share in just a moment and bring us this rumour afresh through, through the book of First Peter. They're going to bring the rumour that is always with us, alive to us tonight. And so let's pray before Sam comes and then Lydia. Holy Spirit, send afresh gifts that you promised the church. As we listen attentively, humbly, and expectantly, and as Sam and Lydia share, our hearts will be ablaze because our ears have heard the rumor of Jesus afresh. Amen. If my accent didn't give it away already, uh, I grew up in South Wales. And I was back there last week uh, visiting family. And as I was there, I was reminded of this word in the Welsh language. It has, it's one of those words that has no direct translation into English. It's hiraith. And it describes a sort of deep longing for home. But it's more than that. It's a sort of blend of homesickness mixed with nostalgia, mixed with a deep longing. Almost a homesickness tinged with grief or sorrow. And it made me think of, of The Lord of the Rings, having recently rewatched it. And it makes me think of that look in the eyes of Sam and Frodo as they talk about the Shire, that deep longing for home and all of its comforts. I'm sure we all have those moments in life that we can think of when we felt a deep homesickness. Maybe it was the moment you moved to London, left behind home that first night in a new bed in a new city. Maybe as your parents dropped you off for uni that, that first week of being away. Or your first Christmas away from home. And I think the people that Peter is writing to in this passage this evening, they may be feeling a sense of hiraith. You see, Peter's writing to the early church in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, writing to the Gentiles um, who've been scattered. And the people there are experiencing a sense of hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbours. Peter describes them as exiled, as foreigners living in a distant land, And it's significant that it's Peter writing, one of the 12 disciples, one who knew Jesus, failed Jesus, but was restored by Jesus. And it's him now who's writing to encourage the early church to persevere in their faith. How? Well, he reminds them of their new family identity, who they are and what they're called to. He evokes an identity that God gave to them, one that he also gave to Abraham and the Israelites, who were also homesick, exiled, maybe even feeling the sense of hiraith. And I'd like to focus just quickly on one aspect of this identity, our identity as a royal priesthood, which is effectively a merging of two concepts. We've got royal, meaning kings, and priesthood, meaning priests. I want to briefly look at three elements. First, what priests and kings were in the Old Testament, 
Second, how Jesus is priest and king. And then finally, how the church is called to live as kings and priests. So first, kings and priests in the Old Testament. The starting point, I think, is this passage is an echo of some words in Exodus. A passage where God sets out the terms of covenant that he makes with the Israelites. It's one of several covenants that God makes in the Old Testament, which are effectively the terms of relationship. God sort of says to his people, if you do X, I will be X to you. And in this passage in Exodus 19, God says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God calls the Israelites to be a kingdom of priests and kings. But how? How how would these people be chosen? How would you become a priest or king? Well, according to the law of Moses, dictates that you had to be born into the right tribe. You see, it was something hereditary, not something you could sort of apply for or go to university career service to get into. And so from the tribe of Levi, we get the priests. The priests served in the temple. They taught the law. They made offerings on behalf of the people. And the most senior, the sort of boss priest, was called the high priest of Israel. And his most important duty was to enter the Holy of Holies once per year, the place where God's sacred presence dwelt. And he would offer sacrifice and mediate or intercede on behalf of the people. On the other hand, the kings came from the tribe of Judah. Um, Kings were called to lead the people, to make decrees, to take territory, to expand the kingdom with authority and influence. David, Solomon, and a load of others, great characters from the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, part of the Israelites' identity is in this calling to be kings and priests. But you couldn't be both. The priests intercede for the people and the king's influence for the kingdom. So coming to Jesus as king and priest, coming back to our passage, Peter declares to the early church that they are to be a royal priesthood. Now this would probably have seemed quite bizarre to the readers in Asia Minor, shocking even. Um, In the Old Testament, as we just covered, these concepts of king and priest are separate. You, you can't be both. But what we read in this passage is the two have come together. They've merged into royal priesthood. And I think the key to understanding this change is that there's been a change in context, that Jesus has come. And as Hebrews 8 says, Jesus has brought, brought a new and better covenant one that replaces the old, that the old priesthood is, is done away with. And in this new covenant, the roles of priest and king merge seamlessly in the person of Jesus. He's both king of kings, lord of lords, and great high priest forever. And Jesus' priesthood is better in at least two ways. Instead of the constant cycle of sacrificing for sins like the Old Testament priests, instead of needing to go into the Holy of Holies once per year to intercede on behalf of the people, Jesus makes one 
perfect sacrifice once and forever. And secondly, instead of dying and being replaced by the next priest, Jesus intercedes forever on behalf of his people. Now, I don't know, this isn't, this isn't confirmed in Scripture, but there was probably some first-century smart-ass wondering how this is all possible. How could Jesus, who wasn't from the tribe of Levi, be a priest? And I think the key is, is, is lurking in, in, in this passage in Hebrews, in the somewhat mysterious figure of Melchizedek. He was mentioned in this morning's sermon as well, so he's got two outings in one day. You wouldn't be blamed for knowing uh, know much about him. We actually do know very little. Um, apart from in Genesis 14, which describes him as king of Salem and priest of God. So we have this figure who existed before Moses, before the old priesthood even existed, who is both king and priest. And so in Genesis, in this figure of Melchizedek, we have a foreshadow, a foreshadow of the Messiah who would be king and priest. And one of the interesting things about Melchizedek when he's listed in Genesis is that unlike most of the people we hear about in this bit of the Bible, he has no recorded lineage, no father, sons, or anything around. And in this sense, he's foreshadowing Jesus as our great high priest forever. He has no beginning and no end. So Jesus is the guarantor, the guarantor of a new, better covenant in which he is both king of kings and great high priest forever. Now, I think it would be fair to say that's, that's all well and good, but, but what about us? What about the church today? What about us in 2022? Well, I think there's a sense in which we are exiles, people living in a foreign land where we feel a sense of homesickness or a deep longing. Maybe that feeling that something's just not quite right in the world, that this can't be all there is. Maybe a sense of he-life. And so this passage is an encouragement to us. Peter's reminding us of our identity as royal priests, which I think is a potential game-changer in two ways. See, through Jesus, we're invited into the inner throne room, to the place where only the high priest would have gone. And like those Old Testament priests, we're given direct access. We're invited by God into the most intimate place. We're invited into relationship with him. And then secondly, through Jesus, we're invited into the family. We're brought into the family will. We're made royalty. And like kings, we're is in God's kingdom, and we get to reign with Christ. So Peter's reminding us of who we are in Jesus and this, this new identity as priests and kings. He's reminding us that we're part of a much bigger story, one that links us with the people of Asia Minor, the Israelites in the wilderness, Abraham, and even the mysterious figure of Melchizedek. But it's easy in the busyness of life, isn't it, for, for this identity, for our true identity to be crowded out, for the world to speak other things over us. And at times we need to hear the truth spoken out, who we really are, 
a reminder of what we're called to be. It reminds me a little bit of those really cheesy superhero films. You know, the ones where like, the main character is kind of lost. They've sort of, they're a fraction of themselves. They've lost their identity. And there's that one moment, a sort of turning point in the film where they rediscover who they are, normally when they're at their lowest and they feel like giving up. There's something that reminds them who they are, why they got into it in the first place, and they rediscover who they are. I think in the same way for us today, as we're reminded of, of our identity as priests and kings, there's a challenge, a challenge to then go and, and live it out. So I don't think it's a static identity, it's not just theory, it shows up in our decisions, in our words, in what we do with our time, in what we do with our money. And I think this is where it gets a little bit crazy, because Jesus not only gives us this new identity as priests and kings, but he passes on the ministry to us. He calls us to be priests and kings to the world around us, to minister with him. As priests, we're called to bring the world to God, interceding on behalf of a lost world. I don't know for you, but maybe there's, there's people or situations in particular that God has put on your heart people and situations that he wants you to take into that intimate place, intercede on behalf of, contend for change. And similarly, as kings, we're called to take God into the world, influencing for his kingdom in the places where we work, live, and spend time. And so I think there's a reminder for us that, that our identity, this new identity, drives towards action that we're called to live out this new identity as priests and kings. I wonder what comes to mind for you. Is there a simple way this week that you could remind yourself of, of that true identity? On a Monday morning, I get waking up, you don't feel like a priest or king. But maybe there's a way of reading this verse out, out loud every day, speaking it over yourself, allowing it to saturate your soul and heart. Maybe it's writing it on a post-it note, sticking it around the house, or renaming your alarm to priests and kings. I think also just finding simple ways to live this out. Maybe there's one person in particular, a situation on your heart. <coughs> Maybe you could spend a few minutes each day contending, interceding. And so just bringing it all together. <coughs> In the Old Testament, we've got priests interceding on behalf of people, kings influencing for the kingdom. <clears throat> but it all takes place within an imperfect system in which offerings are regularly needed and priests need to be replaced. Second, Jesus brings this new covenant in which he's king of kings and great high priest forever. And what's great is that we're invited in we're given this new identity. Through him, we're made royalty, invited into the family as co heirs given access to God, the throne room, and invited into that intimate place. And finally, as the church today, we're called to be kings and priests to the world around us, to influence for his kingdom, 
in the places that we live and work and to intercede for people and situations contending for change. Amen. So I have a friend who is a member of a private members club and this week she invited me um, to come as a guest and the plan was that we'd go to the gym, we'd have a sauna, we'd do coffee and um, we'd feel very special about ourselves. And so I bounced out of bed, this was Thursday morning, bounced out of bed, put my favorite active wear on, felt pretty good about myself and was walking to the gym and we walked in and the man behind the desk, he asked if I was a member and I said quite proudly, no, I'm guest of my friend. And he said, well, no, members aren't allowed in the gym. And I did not feel very special. <laughs> um, but I did charm my way into using the sauna and the showers. And when I was in the sauna, I was actually alone. And uh, feelings of, of not belonging kind of hit me. And I, I had this label like running around my head that you aren't really meant to be here. You're not a member. And uh, it was at that point I remembered I was preaching on this topic. And so I actually spoke out this verse <laughs> to myself in the sauna. Um, and it just, it really made me feel less awkward and, and less rubbish about myself. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to, yeah, tonight, I just want to remind you of your identity um, because it does change things and it changes how we live our lives. Um, and as Sam was saying, we're exiled people and Peter um, is writing to the exiled people and he's, he's declaring these truths over them. And yeah, so I, like I said tonight, I just really want us to like get in close and like embrace this. Like this is truth. This is who God says we are. So yeah, like if you can just really like snatch at that tonight, that would be great. I would have done my job. Um, and my experience at the club kind of made me think about how our world likes to tell us we're special and likes to tell us we're not special all the time. Like that messaging, that mixed messaging is going on in our lives all the time. Uh, and if we base our sense of being special on how others perceive and judge us, um, what club we belong to or what social status we have, it's inevitable that we will have a very temperamental and shaky sense of worth because people can change their minds they can change their opinions, they can change their fondness of us, people die, processes fail, clubs go into liquidation. Um, there'll always be a moment for every human where someone or something or some process excludes you and makes you feel less than special. And popular culture's answer to that is self-love. Uh, the whole like, you do you, babe, and uh, you know that celebration of knowing yourself and your worth. And actually, I'm really into it. I think it's a good thing. I think it's good to celebrate yourself. It's great to love yourself well. Like, I do think we should eat well. I do think we should work out. I do think, you know, live life, laugh with your girls, um, or like go out with, your, with the boys for football, or whatever, like is actually a good thing. Um, however, if you base your sense of self-worth or your identity on how you love yourself and think of yourself, some days you just aren't gonna feel great. 
And sometimes self-love is really hard to muster up. And it takes a lot of therapy, self-help books, and daily manifesting and Pilates to achieve it, which is exhausting even just speaking it out loud. So to do it all is a nightmare. And then our own minds are fickle, right? Like, we don't always love ourselves well. We're so driven by our feelings, which are often driven by our experiences and circumstances of how others see us and treat us. So even if the world tells us we're really special, your mind won't always believe it. So when Peter says that we are chosen people, God's special possession, um, this is the best news because God is never changing. So what he says about us, we can really believe. Um, God is so faithful, and he doesn't change his opinion of us. In Numbers 23, verse 19, it says, God is not human, that he should lie, not a human being, that he should change his mind. Our society needs and only functions on labeling us and boxing us into categories, like you're a member, you're a non-member, <laughs> you're wealthy, you're poor, you're in, you're out, you're successful, you're not. Um, and as long as we live on this earth, that's kind of like what's going to happen, right? We're going to be labeled by someone or something. And so, like, let's make sure the creator, our creator, is the one labeling us. Let's make sure that we only accept the label that he says over us. Because our God is all-knowing, all-loving, and his promises are everlasting. God is the only constant in our lives. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he promises to never leave us or forsake us. His opinion of us isn't fickle or based on anything we achieve. He has chosen us, and he loves us even before we choose to love him. Romans 5, verse 8 says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still living in sin, Jesus died for us. Therefore, what God thinks of us is a firm foundation. It's a foundation to base our identity and sense of worth on. He values you so highly that he died for you. So you can live out your identity as chosen, not rejected, royal, not common, holy, not sinful, special and wanted by God. So are you living like you're worth dying for? You might not feel special, and the world might not say you're special, but God has chosen you and calls you his special possession. Does that not just blow your mind that we are God's special possession? Like, God created the mountains, he created stars, and yet we are in, like, pride of place. Like, we win out of all of that, all of that beauty and all of that creation. Um, this is also a statement of intimacy. We're his special possession. Like, that is such an intimate statement. Like, think about what you hold most dearly. Like, what, how do you treat it? Like, what do you think, how do you think about it? Um, for me, it's actually the ring I'm wearing. It's my special possession. And it's special because it actually belonged to my granddad. So it's like emotionally connected to me. My dad, my, he gave it to my dad. My dad gave it to me. And, uh, like, I'm a bit obsessed with this ring, not in the same way as, like, Gollum, like an unhealthy obsession, but there's a little bit of an obsession. Like, if it's not on my finger, I freak out. Like, if I can feel it without it being on my finger, um, I, I put it by my bed, and I have, like, a special bowl I put it in, and, like, I know what scratches are on it, and I, like, 
shine it and like I like it a lot and I it is my it's special to me and God calls us like special possession like that's how he holds me it's how he thinks of me takes care of me like he's so intimate and like caring of me just like I am with my ring um but he actually does it in a far greater way it's a more impactful way of loving me because he created us and, and knew us before we were even born. Like in our mother's womb, he knew us and he knows every hair on our heads. Um, and then I'm thinking about the word possession and I've been thinking about it all week. And it does kind of trigger this weird feeling, right? Like we don't really want to be owned by anything. Like that doesn't feel very free or um, like life-giving. And yet, actually, like this is amazing news that we are owned by a good good God and this is a good type of ownership because like Alulu preached about um, the good shepherd a few weeks ago and it's like he loves us he's a good shepherd like he looks after us if we wonder which we can do it's not like he owns us and we can't live our lives like we are free to wonder and yet he will pursue us he will love us it doesn't matter we don't earn this love but he will contend for us, come towards us, look after us. So it's really good news, and we're really safe, and he holds us in his hands. Um, so I just want to invite us tonight, like, let him hold you, let him love you, let him look after you. And Psalm 9, verse 14 to 5 says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Being owned by God is not that you become less, but you get to be more of all that you were made to be. He promises to protect you, make your path straight, and give you life to the full, and life in all its freedom. So are we awake to this truth? My prayer, like I said at the beginning, is that we really take hold of this and we live into our true identities. And like Sam, I have practical suggestions. And I think first and foremost, I just want you to pray, like go home, or maybe now, like pray that God will just give you that experience of how much he loves you. Like maybe you pray, like God, let me feel your hands around me. Like let me feel you holding me. Um, when I did this this week, he actually <laughs> said, like, look in the mirror <laughs> and just stare directly into your own eyes, which is a bit intense, but I did it. And my eyes are amazing. And, like, your eyes are amazing. Like, all our eyes are amazing, and we're all uniquely made. And I was just staring at my own eye, and I was like, flip, this is so cool. Like, I can see, one, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> but two, like, I have amazing, like, different colors, like, different weird veins going on. Like, there's so much, like, specks. Like, it's like a masterpiece in, like, one eyeball, and, and I have two. <laughs> but, like, we all, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, we all have amazing, like, beautiful eyes were like marvelously made like take some time to to ask God to show you how much he loves you and he will and maybe for some of you it is just go home look in your eyes or some of you like Sam said like repeat this this over yourself Uh, maybe write it on your mirror maybe put it on the lock screen of your phone because it's so important that we remember our, our identity like how much time do we spend looking at ourselves in the mirror to look good for dates and work or whatever and we clean our teeth, like, let's also do this. I think it will change things for us. Um, 
So to wrap up, the end of this passage says that you are called chosen royal holy so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And Peter here is calling out another key part of our identity that we were actually made also to be worshippers. If we just stopped knowing our identity as chosen and special, we actually wouldn't be able to hold our identity in a pure way, like it would just feel too heavy. We start navel gazing probably, idolizing ourselves, worshipping ourselves, being real narcissists and no one would want to be around us. And um, we'd let ourselves down pretty quickly and others as well, as we don't really love ourselves, or, like I said, or others super well all the time. And we need to worship something that is pure and worthy of praise. And Jesus is that. So just quickly, what does praising really mean? I think it means to love God with all your heart and soul and mind. So Jesus teaches this as the greatest commandment. We express um, loving God with our whole selves, mind, body, soul, and mind, heart. Um, and we do this in ways like loving one another generously, loving one another sacrificially, praying, and how we sing songs of adoration to him. And, and it's why some of us put our hands in the air, because it's like we just want to adore him with everything that we have. So may our lives not be sacrifices to success or power or worldly significance. May our lives be sacrifices to the love of Jesus. May we build altars of praise. May Jesus' name be glorified through our lives. When we worship Jesus, we're reminded of who we are and that we're made for something greater than what this earth can offer us. So to echo back to Sam's point about homesickness, we find home when we're praising our creator and we find rest for our souls and we're reminded of our true identity. Um, and then Tim gave me this great line. He said, praise is the sound of the homesick. And I think it's a great place to end, but I'm gonna to add to it because I, I like to make it a bit more dramatic. And I'm gonna say praise is the battle cry of the homesick and the sound of the chosen. So I just wanna encourage us to, to praise God and step into all that we're called to be. Amen. So as we respond, just, just grab hold of whatever God's been speaking to you about, maybe. It's just a sheer wonder that, that your priest, eternal priest, has called you close. That there's no gap between you and God and you can go to the most holy of places. Maybe it's that you're called to act as part of the family business. That you're a king or a queen. Maybe it's just a reminder that your eyes are amazing too. <laughs> And that God holds you how Lydia holds her ring as a special possession. And just remembering that final point, that the way to steward that identity is praise. The way to hold it well is, is to give it back to God in praise. Should we stand?